And welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is Ricky Yance along with Mike Miller and Natty P. Uh, we are G220 Radio and uh, we are got a special episode here for you tonight. This is episode number 470. We're going to be talking about a Berean's response to the social justice gospel. That is a title of the program tonight and the title of the book. Uh, and our guest is uh, Daniel Knapp, and he is the author of that book. And so we're going to uh, talk to him in just a second. But, uh, Mike, how are you doing uh, this this uh, evening, brother? Doing pretty good. Excited to have uh, Daniel on and live in person this time. I'm, like, watching a video of him last time we had him on the show. Yeah, for what what those maybe uh, are unaware of, what Mike is referring to is, uh, I think it's about a year ago, me and Dan was talking before the show, about a year ago, uh, I had went up to um, Detroit area and listened to a debate in which Dan was a participant of, and uh, we reviewed that here on G220 Radio. Uh, like I said, it was about a, a year ago we did that, and uh, so we, we had Dan on the show, but not officially on the show. Yeah, this is my first go around. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're definitely glad to have you and, and look forward to, to talking to you about this book here. And uh, Natty P, how we doing, brother? I know you just came back from the Super Bowl. Um, hoping to have a show on that maybe next week or the following where we can get some of the guys from the Super Bowl. I figured you're you're already a, a co-host on the program, so you'll be here anyway. But uh, the uh, other guys can come in and, and talk about some of the testimonies and stuff. So how, how'd it go, brother? How, how are you, uh, doing this, this, uh, this evening? Um, I'm good. I got a little bit of a tan, so that was nice. And, uh, it was a good time getting to hang out with the brothers and learn stuff and talk to people about Jesus and worship in public loudly. Yeah. So that was a good time. Well, praise the Lord for that. I'm really excited uh, to get some of those brothers on the program and hear some of those testimonials about what what happened. Um, we've been doing Sports Fan Outreach International um, evangelistic events for, for many years now, and uh, this has been interesting over the last year with the pandemic. So to see what uh, brothers have been able to experience out there in Tampa uh, for the Super Bowl, it was good to see a bunch of guys being able to get out there. Uh, and to just to share the gospel. And it was good to see the many people that were in attendance out there, which makes for good crowds to share the gospel with. And so uh, that was exciting to watch all the videos as they were popping up online uh, of those guys uh, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And so uh, looking forward to hearing some more about that uh, maybe next week or the following. Now, uh, as I said, uh, we have uh, Daniel Knapp. He is the author of A Berean's Response to Social Justice Gospel. You've heard uh, we mentioned him, uh, has been on the show unofficially, but now officially here with us tonight. Excited about that. So, uh, Dan, why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know about you. Maybe share your testimony, how you came to know the Lord, uh, and then let us know some things that are important about you here for the, the topic that we're going to be discussing here tonight. All right. I am uh, rushing quickly towards middle age, if you can't tell by the beard. Um, <clears throat> I am a father of two. I have a five-year-old or an almost five-year-old and a two-month-old. Um, I am happily married now for 10 years. I am a deacon, small group leader, slash Sunday school teacher, slash fill in the blanks at my church, which is in Novi, called Berean Baptist. I am a graduate of Michigan Theological Seminary, where I have my MDiv. Um I came to the Lord because of uh, a close friend of mine in college was just so annoying about talking about Jesus that uh, he eventually got me on the hook. So if anyone tells you that uh, you're being too annoying about Jesus, don't listen to him. It works. And so, uh, yeah. And so that's how I came to the Lord. In, in college, I had a guy, a friend of mine who was a great year behind me. Um, <clears throat> I worked for the IT department fixed his computer. And uh, from then on, we were friends. And he was with me through some tough times, sharing the gospel with me and brought me to the Lord at the end of my junior year. Uh, went into my senior year, kind of a baby Christian, six months in, said, hey, let's go to seminary to get more prepared. So I ran off and got my MDiv. And uh, now I'm just active in my church. Uh, for a profession, I do computer programming, web development, uh, anything in the technology world I have experience in more or less. And so that's where I'm at. And I spend most of my time in this chair, sitting in this basement <laughs> because I'm working from home. And so, uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk about this. I think it's an important issue, a pressing issue, and I'm looking forward to this discussion tonight. So thank you for having me. Yeah, well, like I said, we're, we're, we're glad to have you on the program. Um, kind of let's maybe start with a little bit of history here before we maybe jump into some of the terms, because um, we were kind of talking before the show uh, about some things that I had seen over the years, like I was saying to you before the program, uh, that about five or six years ago, I was in a church and I had been going downtown Cleveland and I started to see the atmosphere uh, of young black men start to shift. I started to see more guys angry, angry towards the gospel, angry towards, uh, and, and we all understand that people get angry towards the gospel because people are uh, going to reject the word of God. But what I started to see is is men becoming angry towards the gospel and angry towards the Christian church because a lot of these men who then became Hebrew Israelites were in churches and they were looking for answers and they were trying to find things but they weren't getting it. They were seeing abuses. They were seeing pastors who were taking money and and living off those ties and and living uh, extravagant kind of lifestyles, maybe not like to the to the degree of a Joel Osteen or a T.D. Jakes, but they were living what seemed to be these extravagant lifestyles off the church's funding, and these people in the church were not prospering themselves, but these were the messages that they were hearing, and when they came with questions because they were reading scripture, they didn't have answers for them. And so I started to see this anger start to happen where there wasn't just the normal rejection that I would get from people who was opposed to the gospel, but there was this extra kind of push towards uh, anger towards the Christian church. Um, and then over time, as I began to go down there, I started to see these small groups of Hebrew Israelites, <clears throat> excuse me, grow because it was attractive, <clears throat> excuse me. And the same thing with uh, Nation of Islam and many of these other different kind of cults. They were attracting uh, these young black men away from Christianity and into these cults, uh, cults trying to find an identity. Uh, and I think that was, for me, I started to see this shift. And as I look back, I kind of say, okay, I, I started to see some things happening here. And as we were talking before the show, and I'd like you to kind of open that up, um, it even goes back a little bit f further than that. So um, why don't you go ahead and give us some history on why we are where we are today? Okay, so... <clears throat> Depending on how far back you want to go, I can take this back to the mid-1800s or so in this discussion, um, bring in eschatology and the Civil War, and I think how that led us to today. Um, my focus is more on what's happening in the Reformed Church, uh, but what's kind of going on there, I think you used a very key word, and that is identity, right? When I wrote, when I wrote the book, I, was, I didn't really have in mind the Hebrew Israelites. I'm familiar with them. I've studied some of their stuff. Um, I've taught small group on them a couple lessons. And so I'm, I'm familiar with them. But what's going on there and how it relates is that theme of identity, mm -hmm. right? And the idea that they are demonizing the white church and calling Christianity the white man's religion. And so they're setting up a situation where the white church is being demonized, it's being villainized, it's being problematized is a technical word for it. And it's being said that if you don't belong in this in this white Christian church, if you are not, if you're not a white man. And so it's really creating a situation where these people are now feeling alienated from their home and they're digging into other areas, such as Nation of Islam, Islam, um, Black Hebrew Israelites and things of that nature. And so it's really a need for identity. I think Christianity lost a lot of its identity in the last 150 years in different ways. Um, some of those topics are above me, but some of them I think I have an okay grasp on. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so, so as we then, now that we've looked at seen it or how this is kind of coming about people trying to find identity. Uh, let's talk about some of those terms. Like, cause we, we hear it critical race theory. We've done a show on it before. We would encourage people to go back and listen to that show as well. Um, but what, what is this critical race theory defined? What is it that is, um, or I should say, like, how did we get here? Maybe, maybe more, more uh, appropriately, we would start with this social justice gospel or the social gospel that we're seeing. Um, that that sort of plays off of that. 
the critical race theory. But maybe we can talk about that because we've seen that kind of being pushed out into society over the last uh, 50, 60 years as well. Yeah. And so one thing that's happening um, is a redefinition of just a ton of terms. Just a ton of language is being redefined. And the social gospel, if you asked anyone 10, 15 years ago what the social gospel was, it was churches should be more involved in giving to the poor, right? The identity of the poor versus the identity of the rich and having that separation. And that's more tied to classical Marxism and the separation of the rich and poor and the bourgeois versus the proletariat, right? Um, now, what's happened in the last 10 years or so is the social justice gospel. And that's kind of a reworking of some of those categories towards instead of dividing on uh, class, you're dividing on social elements, such as race is the big one, or gender. And so you're creating a dynamic of identity that is saying, you can be pigeonholed here, you can be pigeonholed here, you can be pigeonholed here because of your race, your income, your gender, your biological sex, if you want to make those distinctions. Um, and those are your identities. And so it's really pigeonholing people into identities, and it's setting up situation of divide and conquer, right? That's the way historic Marxism has always worked, is divide and conquer. And so what that's bringing into the church now is a lot of people are teaching, even in not so verbal ways, but in a sense that the middle-class white American male is the bad guy. And that anyone who's not in there is kind of a victim. And even if you can't point towards something and put your finger on an act of oppression, you can't point to a law, you can't point to something said, you can't point to an action, just know that these categories are true. These person are in the hegemony, which means they have the position of power, and these people are inherently oppressed by their identity. And white Christian middle-class male is the hegemony. It's the big bad guy, the way it's being made. And that's worked its way into the church. Um, I think it's been in certain elements of the church for a while. But in the last, uh, I want to say, five years or so, it's really worked its way into areas of the church where I'm more engaged, the Reformed Calvinistic Club. Um, it's really worked its way in there. And it's causing a whole bunch of divisions because I think some of the protections that God would have in place are not in place anymore. Um, we've lost them over the, the decades. Well, what is really wrong with a idea or an understanding that a church wants to be social or, or have justice? Well, why would that become a, an issue uh, that we're, we're seeing today? Uh, because I think we all would agree that it's good for us as Christians to speak up against injustices. We we would say that it's good for us as Christians to uh, give a hand to the needy, you know, if we can feed the poor or if we can clothe someone that's in need. Those things aren't necessarily in and bad and of themselves, but as you was kind of already um, speaking on, but why is this becoming the main focus of what the church's mission is? Not that those are not important things that we should do, but how is this then now taking a hold of and becoming a dangerous uh, and even another gospel? Yeah, and so I think what's happening is because it's becoming part of people's core identity and people are being divided and conquered, I, I've heard people argue for separate communion tables based on race that yeah, I see, I see Natty's face there. Yeah, separate communion tables, which is the heart of unity, right, in Christianity, to divide based on race. Um, I, I believe uh, Eric Mason taught that in his book, Woke Church. And so you have an element where it's really this divide and conquer, and it's worked its way into the Reformed Church. Uh, it's obviously dangerous, right, because Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility, right? We are one faith, one baptism. And you're introducing these divisions, these artificial divisions in many cases. Race is not even a biblical concept. Um, nationality and ethnos 
our, our biblical concepts. Race itself is not really a biblical concept. And so we're, we're introducing these unbiblical categories and dividing over them. And I think that is horrendously dangerous. And what it does is it takes the focus of the church off of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel reconciliation, first reconciliation, us with God, and then us with each other. And it's really ruining and redefining how Christians should think about justice. Um, I give a really short work in the book uh, about how a Christian should think about justice. And I give a very short defense about how a Christian should be able to still look back at the law of Moses and apply in a general sense, a general equity sense, the principles of innocent until proven guilty and the right to self-defense and what is oppression? How do you oppress someone? And take those biblical concepts that basically from the time of Moses on were assumed and understood that were applied by Paul, applied by Jesus, and have that be our definition of justice instead of these external 19th century Marxist categories that are designed to divide and conquer. I think maybe, and, and you guys could jump in if you agree or disagree with me here, but I think maybe part of the reason why the church could easily fall into that is because I think within a, in the American Christian context, um, there's a a very large population of people that claim to be Christian, and some probably are genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, who don't put any emphasis on the law of God at all. They look at the law and say, well, that's Old Testament, that's done away with. I mean, I've even heard teachings just even this week as I was listening to some uh, something that another person uh, recommended me check it out, where the guy was saying, well, we're not under any law, not even the Ten Commandments. We're not, we're not under anything. And so there's this devaluing of the law of God. And so then you can't really look to the general equity of God's law and see those things that, yeah, okay, we may not have to perform these ceremonial sacrifices that was given to the the nation of Israel, but there is principles within laws given to them um, in the context of them as a nation that still we can apply those principles, as you said, the general equity and pull those today and live from that. But because people have this view that, well, the law is no longer binding, the law is no longer there for the Christian, we're to live under the law of Christ. And many times when you ask, well, what's the law of Christ? They don't really have an answer. Yep. Um, so I don't know, maybe you want to jump in and say something regarding that. Yeah. Or, and guys, if and, you want to jump in too. Yeah, and that was a tension I lived with for many years about how to understand law and justice and Moses in a New Testament context. And I, I had a particular view called a two-kingdom view that really kind of divided these things. Um, I didn't have a full grasp of it. In the last couple of years, I've really come to a more full understanding and appreciation of what is said uh, from the pen of Moses. Um, but yeah, I think that really is the biggest issue, is Christians have abandoned, for several reasons, the law. Now, none of us here are, are saying that you need the law to be saved. Right. The law doesn't justify. It was never made to justify, right? It's not its intent. It, it is unable to do that, right? So we're not talking about salvation from the law. But what we as Christians can still look at is what is our ethical theory? What, what do mm -hmm. we understand from the first two-thirds of the Bible of what is right, what is wrong, how do we deal with those, how do we think about those, how do we apply those in the world. And the, the, the term general equity, I throw it around a lot, actually comes from both the Westminster Confession of Faith as well as the 1689 London Baptist Confession. So these are accepted, loved, practiced categories since the Reformation. Um, and I, I, try to, try to, I try to understand that that stream of thought. Even if I don't agree with everything from those guys, I do tend to want to at least understand and respect what what those creeds say because there is so much wisdom and practice and thought put in there. And so the, the term general equity is is what I'll be using to talk about the application of Moses in the Christian life today. And I think I think Ricky, you hit the nail on the head. Christians, for many reasons, some theological, some practical, uh, some just preferential, we have abandoned the first two-thirds of our Bible. I mean, I can reach behind me, grab my uh, NIV study Bible. It's the one right here. 
And you will see if I turned it around, even in my Bible, that was my first real Bible, even in my Bible, the last third is much more used than the first two thirds. And I look on your shelf, it's probably true for many of us as well. And I think that really harms our understanding of what God says justice is. You know, to answer your question from before, there's nothing wrong with Christians who wanting to participate in justice. In fact, I think we need to, but we also need to do so in a way that is biblical. We need to do, do so in a way that's honoring to God. And I think that the social justice gospel, uh, where the church has where the church has been heading in the last few years, is dangerous and unbiblical. Yeah. So talking about that and thinking through, so you know, you start your book out talking about the social gospel and kind of mainline liberal liberalism kind of as they developed. Um Obviously, for them, it's not that hard to go from just a social gospel into a social justice gospel. I mean, I grew up PCA. You see that. I mean, it just natural just went through it. The ELCA went through that. The um, extremely liberal Church of America, um, as I know them, the Evangelical Lutheran um, is their official name. But I love it. Um, I got it from Todd Friel. It's not excellent. But um, just thinking through that, where does it kind of creep into the more conservative? Like, as you've mentioned, you know, Tabidi Annabelle early in your book. Yep. And I, I remember like his T4G message about can your gospel save a terrorist? Yeah, so Tabidi is an interesting case, right? Because his T4G sermon in like 2008, when I think he talked about race, and he made the great joke, you know, what does Tabidi mean? It means invite the black man to talk about race. So it, it, he, that was actually a spot-on talk. I would agree with every category that he said in that sermon. But in the last 14 years, if you follow his Twitter account and stuff now, he he is not saying and using the same categories that he used 14 years ago, right? He's talking about white supremacy. He's talking about uh, black victimhood and things of that nature. And those categories, as far as I understand them, just completely contradict what he was saying a decade or more ago. And so it's it's an interesting to see him evolve over that, right? And uh, I know he's had some run-ins with uh, the likes of James White and Doug Wilson and the sort as he's made these transitions. And uh, and here we are. So, yeah, I guess kind of was going for what I guess, and maybe this is beyond maybe what you research. Where are they picking this up from? I mean, James Cone it seems to have a recent renaissance. I know a bookstore here close, a privately owned bookstore that usually keeps all the books for classes in stock. I'm seeing James Cone take up shelves, which I never saw before, walk in there. So where's that kind of the point of contact with the old, with the liberalism that's kind of developed out of this social gospel to this kind of introduction into conservative um, broadly speaking, but then also, you know, in particular, kind of the reformed, restless, reformed type um, people. Yeah, and so I, I, some of this discussion actually goes to a um, Shepherds Conference that was held a couple years ago. And when it was first held and streamed, um, Phil Johnson who works with John MacArthur, had a few people who are starting to lean towards that social justice stuff, had them on stage and just start asking the hard questions. And after it streamed, they pulled it. They tried to memory hold it. And the social understanding and the word got out, the news got out, this discussion happened. And so they were forced to put it back online. And so that would be a good place to go look to see kind of what's going on there. And in that talk, one of the more social justice one uh, people, I, I want to say it was like Duncan, but don't quote me on that. He said that the reason why he has taken on, uh, especially more of a critical race theory, which is uh, the, the identity stuff around race, he's taken that on is because he wants to be able to say to his kids and grandkids, listen, 
we fought for justice in this area, right? So don't don't think that we are completely ignorant to the need for justice, uh, b- but we're not going to go down, you know, defending gay rights. And so it's an attempt to maintain we're conservative, big God Christianity, uh, young, restless, reformed. We are still in that camp. We still believe in sovereignty and the five points of Calvinism. We still think the scriptures are inspired. But when it comes to practicing justice, we want to do this and appeal to the world to some extent. And so we can go this far, but no further. And you just mentioned a whole bunch of mainstream denominations. I'm sure they all said the same thing in the past, right? Once yeah. compromise gets in there, I mean, rather let me quote, let me quote the scriptures on this, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. And so they started compromising, and I think it's just going to keep happening. Um, and I give a couple of reasons for that. In the book, I talk about, even if you're just applying uh, critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools, what you're doing is you're allowing those categories of identity, power, hegemony, victimhood, all that stuff to be introduced. And once you introduce those things, even as just lenses to look at the problem, the only thing that you can see through those lenses are identity problems, which means the only solution you're going to see are identity solutions. And so once you accept the unbiblical myopic categories, you're stuck going down that pipe. And if history means anything, we will see a lot of these, what we would consider now faithful reformed churches uh, go go the way of the United Methodist Church in the next 20 years, maybe even faster with the social pressures happening politically and in the culture. Yeah. Is that helpful? I hope. I mean, I I know what you're talking about. I I was a Southern student. Just, I graduated just before all of that, the the, uh, Shepherds Conference happens. I was at Southern when the, the, the statement on social justice and the gospel came out. Yep. Um, I've known about that controversy on the campus more intimately than maybe others have. In fact, I've had classes with uh, um, Howard. I can't think of his name. Kyle. Oh, yeah. Kyle yeah. Howard. Yep. Um, we were students or classmates in difference. And so I think that's been one thing I've, I've wrestled with. I mean, to say that that wasn't an issue on campus is to be wrong. Now, I never experienced some of the CRT um, elements and teachings, but it wasn't there. Um, a previous elder of mine who left to go pastor a church, he took a professor. That was part of the class. It was an exegetical class on Ephesians, I think it was. He, he encountered that, um, some of that. And I think, and that's just, that's been the boggling because kind of some of it, at least in mine, and maybe just naivety, it just like hit me out of nowhere. And I think a lot of people that. are experiencing that, right? They're sitting in their pews with their churches and they're saying, this is not what I signed up for. This is not the way it was five years ago. And they're hearing these things from trusted or once trusted people, such as Tabidi, Anabwile, Legan Duncan, um, Tim Keller and the likes, right? They're hearing their heroes of the faith, their living heroes of the faith use these categories. And it's kind of like, this isn't, this isn't right. And, and so um, it's definitely blindsiding a lot of people. Churches are dividing, people are leaving churches. Um, the, the book actually started off, not because my church was teaching all uh, this stuff, but my elders uh, were kind of just starting to catch a wind of these things. And so I offered to write a paper for them. It's going to be a five-page paper. And as, as I kept writing, I, I need to say this, I need to say this, I need to say this. I, have, I am not an expert in this. I mean, you look at people like A.D. Robles or uh, John Harris online who study these things and experience these things. They are much more, I mean, Vardy Balkum, another name, they are much more attuned to what's going on. I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but I wanted to bless my church. I wanted to bless my elders. So I wrote this five-page paper that became a 50-page paper. 
And then I had a friend just kind of proofread for me. He said, this is good. You should publish it. And so once I put it into book format, added some additional content, it was 150 pages and it became a book. And so I had no intention to publish to bless my church because a lot of churches out there are struggling with these things, right? People are leaving their churches, planting home churches. It's dangerous. And I mean, you're, you're saying you're seeing it at, at SBTS, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the marquee Southern Baptist uh, uh, University. And that's the Southern Baptist. Dr. Miller always makes that point. Charter says the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah, so you, you, that's scary to me. That's scary to me. And I, I've listened to the briefing for years. I, I, I have some Elmore books. I'm familiar with this teaching. And I am surprised to see what's coming out of the SBTS. Um, obviously not everyone there or not every situation is bad, but there's definitely some hints of some critical theory thought coming out of there and you're saying you're seeing james Cohn's books on the bookshelves and that is that's disheartening to me yeah no defense it's not the southern bookstore which yeah. i haven't been to forever so <laughs> now i actually uh, if, if my memory serves me about four months ago uh, l moeller tweeted a picture of the new arrival section of the southern baptist bookstore and there were some woke books on that, and he got roasted for it. Yeah. And so what you're see, what you're seeing in the uh, off-campus bookstore, it seems to be on the on-campus bookstore too. I'm, I'm I so, could be wrong, but if I remember, yeah. there was some social media back and forth. Uh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that, but in my experience, Southern has always carried books that weren't theologically strong, being yeah. they're an academic library, and that even the new arrival. Yeah, that's what yeah. Elmore said was, yeah. But then Walter Strickland, who was a professor down there, he admitted to teaching James Cohn. He, yeah. he had an interview with the New York Times, admitted to teaching James Cohn's theology, but didn't use the name or the books so he wouldn't get caught or called out as a heretic. That's yeah. scary, right? And he, he later tried to, de to defend himself by saying, well, obviously we're going to teach the controversy, right? We're going to teach what we're against. But his, apparently his syllabus was not really against it, if I remember the debate right. And this is a couple of years ago now, so I could be fuzzy on my yeah. details. But yeah, apparently Walter Strickland was teaching at the SBTS James Cone Theology. So, Yeah, I never had him for a professor. Now, in your book, kind of transition back into it. Um, you break down kind of critical race theory, CRT, and then critter, critical gender theory. Yep. Um, obviously, this is moving towards intersectionality. Yep. Um, why are those are kind of the two, I think we could probably say the two more important aspects of intersectionality as we just not even think about this debate within the church, but also the debate um, broadly within our culture. So I think the reason why those are the two accesses that you, you consider these things is because those are very obvious accesses, right? If, if my stipulation or assumption is right, that this is basically um, a postmodern social Marxist introduction into the church, I don't go into those topics in the book, um, then what's happening is it's designed to divide and conquer. Uh, and so some of the history there is that the, when Marxism was first introduced to America, it flopped, it, just, it failed. And the reason for that was because most Americans at the time of any race or whatever were doing relatively good, right? After, after World War II and, the, the, the fall of communism in, in Europe and stuff, they came, they tried to plant themselves into America and they couldn't take root. And so they refactored themselves around, especially two categories, race and gender, that if we can't divide people based on the bourgeois and the proletariat, we're going to divide people based on male and female, thus feminism. We're going to divide people based on race, right? And the first 
kickoff to this was in the 60s and the 70s and those types of strong identity theory, right? And then it picked up a postmodern flavor in the 80s that that postmodern uh, relativism, in a sense, mixed in with these classical uh, cultural Marxism and gave us the social justice stuff today. Um, and obviously the two most obvious elements of identity without letting the person open their mouth is what they look like. Are they male and female? And what color is their skin? And those are very easy areas to divide on if you want to plant the seed of divide and conquer, which Marxism does. And we can say... We, we can say that that's definitely come into America because, as you, you mentioned earlier, and I kind of want to um, explore this a little bit more, um, the idea that when we read the Bible, we don't see this different category of races. We do see the different category of ethnicity. We see the category of different nations, tribes, right, uh, different languages. We, we see that in Scripture. Um, but we also recognize, uh, if we're being honest, that in our society, even in 2021, there is racism today. However, we, we don't, again, biblically see the category of race. So ultimately, something's going on here. There's a sin that's happening here. We're identifying it as racism, but there's an underlying biblical way of determining or, or defining that, right? So yeah, let's and, speak on that. Yeah, and so in the, in, in the book, I talk about what are the actual sins? What are the biblical sins? Partiality, right? We're going to treat one group of people different than another, right? Um, prejudice, we are prejudging someone based simply on external factors. Pride, right? I, me and my type of people, we are the best, right? That, that, that sense of pride, that racial vainglory where we, where we uh -huh. you know, take glory in our skin color, you know, to quote Yoda, this crude matter, um, and, and hatred, where we hate other people. Those are actual biblical categorical sins that you can point to in the scriptures and say are wrong. Race is not even a, a, a category, right? And so when you talk about ethnos, you talk about ethnicity, you talk about nations and tribes, people groups, there's always a blurring of the line, right? Out of Egypt, uh, the, the Jews came, the, the children of Abraham came, and Egyptians joined them. And Moses married, um, oh, what, what nation was that? Married a woman who comes largely from a darker-skinned nation. And so within the group of Israelites leaving Egypt, you have... Middle Eastern Jews, you have Egyptians, you have Africans, and they didn't think about color. They didn't look at color. It was not, those categories are not the categories of the scriptures. And so I think, I think we need to get back to biblical definition and then recognize that we're introducing sinfully unbiblical thought. So racism would be a prejudice. It would be a pride. It would be a vainglory. It would be hatred against someone who's not like you, right? And so it falls into those categories. <clears throat> and it's sinful because it's introducing that new category of race. Uh, is that helpful to you, Ricky? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think that's what, what I think when we see what's going on today and we understand the Bible says God has created us all in the image of, of himself, in his likeness. And so we understand the value of human life, you know, and the dignity of human life. And within every tribe and tongue, there's, there's definitely differences within, within those tribes. You're going to have some people of darker skin, some people of lighter skin. Uh, you're going to have some differences within that, within, uh, you know, uh, humanity. Um, and what we consider racism today, we would say, yes, racism does happen. People do have hatred for someone else or prejudice for someone else based upon the color of their skin. But there's ultimately that underlying sin of what it really is, what we can actually identify. And so when we're, we're, we're dealing with someone, we can say, hey, look, you know, when we're counseling someone, you're, you're sinning because you have prejudice towards someone just based off their, their skin. And the Bible says not to judge according to the appearance. You know, we can, we can truly identify and, and speak against those things. Um, so 
as we kind of move with that, then we get into, as Mike was saying earlier, then you get into the, the critical gender area where you're seeing now the lines of gender being blurred. And then we're getting into this intersectionality. Um, and so I want to kind of deal with intersectionality now is, is um, like right now, really, uh, many people who are proponents of this kind of idea or thinking uh, would would turn us off automatically because we're four white males sitting here, <laughs> Christian males. I thought that. I thought you that. know, and we're we're discussing this topic, and so I want to get into intersectionality and and then address once we get past that why we as Christian men, regardless of whatever the color of our skin is, we can speak to an issue. Yeah, so intersectionality. Um, has not worked its way into the church quite as much as critical race theory has. And that is because people still want to hold to some of the biblical categories of male headship. That's very clear in both testaments, um, male pastoral ministry. And so it's harder to just introduce that second vector, that, that gender vector. But it, I would lie if I said it wasn't happening. Right. Um, so what intersectionality says is not only do you identify a person and base their sense of justice on their race, you also do so on their gender on another access. And then you can also do so on income and someone's health and someone's vitality and someone's age and all of a sudden you have all these identities right this is why fat shaming is a thing because that is part of someone's identity is how much they weigh and so you're bringing in all these different categories of identity and tacking it on and just creating more and more and more division right you're creating more and more tension in what should be a unified body of christ and so I think intersectionality is slower moving in the church uh, because some of those categories are both clear in the Old and New Testament. But I, I don't think we can say it isn't happening. I, I do think that you are seeing some villainization of rich or middle class people. Um, you have the Me Too or the Church Too movement taking place in the in the church, which is saying that all men are pigs, I mean, which is probably true to some degree, but the way that it's being applied is, I think, dangerous. Um, you also have the identity theory being applied uh, to allowing women in pastoral ministries and saying, hey, if you don't want to be biased against women, and so Beth Moore, who's a Southern Baptist, now preaches, and she openly says she preaches, and she goes to church and preaches, right? And she uses that language of preaching and ministry. And so you have an you have this this other element of identity besides race, that being that being gender or sex, being introduced into the church, and being said, <clears throat> you have oppressed you being the, the church have oppressed this group so long that you not only do you need to act in a way for race you also need to act in a way a certain way to make up for your sins of sexism as well and so you have those external pressures being applied um, on the gender access and the income access as well uh, i think it's slower moving for the reasons i've given but it's definitely there and you have someone like dwight mckissick who is pushing the critical race theory stuff really hard but also then will debate other southern baptists I think he just left the convention, um, <clears throat> would debate other Southern Baptists on female pastoralship because he's applying those gen he's applying those identity and power theories to other areas such as gender, right? He has that myopic view I talked about before, where all he sees is identity and power. Therefore, identity and power must be applied here, 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 and here. And then you have the full-blown intersectional uh, ideology right and so I, I say in my book let's see if i can find it and quote it quickly because it's one of my uh <clears throat> favorite favorite lines um where i basically say that the 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 worst oppressor is a straight 
a straight white Christian middle class, healthy, fertile, right-handed American, English speaking, native born male, right? And I give this long strand of identity. It's kind of funny, but unfortunately it's also kind of what's happening. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and that I think is part of the, the problem there that we're seeing is because as I was saying um, before we started speaking on this, this, this uh, section right here with intersexuality and where we're seeing it head is you have, because I, I've heard this from people on the streets when I'm engaging them is you, you don't have the ability to speak. You haven't been in my shoes. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my struggles. I've been down by the oppressed, the oppressor for so long and you are the oppressor because of you fit into this category. Um, and again, America is this, uh, what they say before, used to say that it's like this melting pot of so many different people coming from so many different countries into this great free nation as we've we've said it for so many years. So you have people that are coming over here who have no connection to what has happened, the evil atrocities that happened during slavery in this country, but because of the color of their skin and maybe a few generations into this country, they're also viewed, you're, you're automatically in this position because you kind of fit a lot of these categories. And so, but we as Christians, we have to have a standard of truth that doesn't change based upon the color of someone's skin or based upon someone's gender or whatever of those categories that you say kind of put you into a more oppressed uh, category or more being someone who's more oppressed than someone else. I think we all have, um, <clears throat> we all could say in some way we've been oppressed by somebody in some point in our lives, just like when it comes to privilege, uh, you get, it gets thrown out uh, quite a bit that, well, you have white privilege. Well, everybody has privilege to some degree in, in comparison to someone else in the world. Um, and we shouldn't look at those privileges that God has given to us as something that we should be um, shameful of or uh, consider to be sin because every good blessing comes from, from the Heavenly Father. So, yeah, and I, I actually talk about this. We shouldn't be ashamed of where we come from, right? I have a lot of Polish blood in me. And the reason why my family came to America was in the 30s. What was happening to Poland in the 30s? Do the math, right? And so I have, you know, uh, I've been oppressed historically. Well, right, I don't think we want to go down that path. We can't be ignorant to historical reasons yeah. why people may be in the situation they're in, mm -hmm. but that also shouldn't change how we apply biblical standards to people, right? And you talk about, you didn't use the language, but you talked a little bit about a standpoint epistemology, that people have certain knowledge based on their identity, where they stand, lets them know how to think. And that standpoint of epistemology, you haven't walked in my shoes, you don't know what I know. That is that is classical standpoint epistemology. And that's being applied to biblical hermeneutics and, and things of the nature. It's very dangerous that only the poor, only the, the, the oppressed, or only the enslaved can read the Bible and really understand it. And everyone else must sit down at the feet of those because you don't have that experience. You don't have that identity. Therefore, you need you can't even read the Bible. You can't read these parts because you don't have that. And that's that's rancorous, if you ask me, right? And I, I talk about that a lot in the book as well. Um, so we can't be ignorant of history as to why someone might be in the situation they're in. But we also must be a forgiving people. And we also must realize that what happened 200 years ago, people today are not guilty of. If I do an act of prejudice... That's on me, and I got to answer to the Lord for it, right? And thankfully, Christ <laughs> destroyed all the dividing walls that I can still have unity with someone. I can still have peace with someone who is different than myself, right? That's one of the, the gifts of the gospel that I think we have lost. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I don't know if I've answered your question there. Yeah, I mean, that's where I was kind of trying to get to is this idea that it's not that there's this, there is this social justice gospel that's out there and kind of being pushed, but there is one gospel. And through this one gospel, God brings reconciliation, first and foremost, between man 
and himself, and then between men and other men. Um, and, and you can throw in the gender we're talking about mankind and other mankind, right? So, I mean, God brings this reconciliation. So when this movement, this social justice gospel movement, this those who are holding to critical race theory, who holding to the, the critical gender theory and intersectionality, bringing that in uh, to some degrees within the church as well, in the Reformed Church, what that's doing is making the gospel not the solution. They're pulling that away and saying, no, you got to believe, but you also must do this. There must be, it's almost Roman Catholic to a degree, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but there's like these penance that you must do to accomplish really being forgiven. Yeah, and part of the history of this entering the church actually goes back to the 60s where some of the liberal Catholics and their social gospel um, especially from Central and South America, being introduced into the Roman Catholic Church, um, basic basic Marxism being introduced into the church, and that worked its way in as well. Um, it also has a European European connection with socialism over there. And so, yeah, it's, it's very Roman Catholic in some ways that not only do we have these false categories of identity in the social justice gospel, we also have a new theory of justice based on identity. And therefore, in order to appease appease this justice, because we should all be concerned with justice, we should all be concerned over what's right. As Christians, we shouldn't have the guilt of the Pharisees or we strain out the gnat and swallow the camel, right? We need to be we need to be concerned with what's first, most important first. And issues of justice are important. Um, and they have redefined justice based on these identity issues. And so you must do these extra biblical things in order to perform justice. Uh, Eric Mason recently gave a sermon a few months ago, and he defended reparations, straight up reparations. And that is what justice demands. Um, and I've heard others say it, but he's probably one of the bigger names. He wrote the book, Woke Church. And he uh, that is what's needed for Christianity is, is reparations. He says, gold, hallelujah, silver, hallelujah, drip, hallelujah. And it's just a situation where he's adding these additional categories to the faith. And then some people have gone as far. And Tabidi's hinted at this, that you are not practicing Christianity if you are not applying these social justice categories um, in your works of justice as a Christian, that you are somehow deficient by not doing these extra biblical, extra biblical things. And so that's definitely opposed to the gospel of grace um, that we have there. Yeah, because the gospel really, when you are in Christ, that brings unity. But what this other movement is doing is bringing division within the yep. body. Because I, I believe it was, um, and, and you guys again can correct me if you think, if I'm misquoting and it's not this individual, but I believe it was Jamar Tisby who said, I don't feel comfortable going to worship with white Christians. Yep. Um, and so that what is what does that sound like? It, it, it sounds like, to me, instead of this gospel bringing unity, and we understanding and recognize that there's differences. I mean, the four of us all may have the same color skin, but I'm sure all of us have differences in our in our lives that, you know, economically, socially, you know, we're, we're going to have differences, but we can be unified through Christ. But when you're making it one of these um, intersecting kind of uh, differences, this critical race theory, the, the gender, whatever it may be, and you're making that the, the central issue, you're dividing those and you're putting back up that wall of hostility amongst yeah. brothers. Like the idea of sin gets lost too. I mean, the, the only sin that matters is uh, the sin of having the wrong identity or, or, or whatever. You're not worried about gossip, slander, covetousness, uh, any host of other, <clears throat> other sins. It's a, it's, are you doing your uh, race, uh, your race work? If you're not doing your race work, then you're if not a, not a Christian. If you're doing your race work, or your anti-racism work, I guess it's called, uh, 
then then you're then you're then you're you're a squared away Christian, no matter how much you gossip, lie, and slander. Um, that's that's what it kind of seems like to me. Yeah, a lot of people actually go that far. Um, I wouldn't say everyone who I think is on this train is you know that back, that far back in the caboose. Um, but there are people who do say that that you know the race work or the anti-racist work whenever you hear the term anti-racism which is a big term right now just know that it actually means racism it it, it what it's saying is in order to make up for systemic oppression in the past we need systemic oppression today to pay for it right and so to make up for racism we need to be racist to make up for sin we need to commit more sin right mm. peter talks talks against this idea of um doing wrong in face of wrong right we need to respond righteously in, in the face of sin and so i think it's definitely a mixing of biblical categories well we're coming down to the end of the program and one of the things i, I want to make sure we do cover here tonight is uh I have a conversation with a brother who, you know, used to be here with us on G220 Radio. Um, we, we talk quite, quite often, and one of the things we constantly both come to is this idea of as Christians, we need to be balanced. We need to be balanced. In the way that we're thinking, we need to be balanced. And when it comes to this issue, I think we also still need to have balance as we're thinking through this. Um, and you mentioned this in your book, and I, I really want to speak to this because one of the first things that we can do as Christians who are against the social justice gospel, against critical race theory, against intersectionality, against these things that we're speaking about here tonight, is when we start to hear a brother in Christ use some of the language or uh, speak on some things, we want to be quick to just like, oh, they must be moving woke or they must be social justice. And I think we need to have balance and listen to, because not everybody who's speaking on some things are necessarily going that way. And so basically what I want to address is how do we, how, how do we stay balanced in this or speak to that to where we have grace with our brothers and sisters and realize maybe it's just a, an experience that this person has had, but they're not going that way, but they're just trying to share some frustration and hurt with you. And so maybe we could speak on that as we, we kind of close out the show um, to where we realize and recognize this is dangerous to the church, but not everybody who may be speaking in, in ways that sound as if that's what they're speaking of are necessarily there. Yeah. Obviously in a book, you're, you're going to be talking about the full definition of the thing, right? I talk about critical race theory, critical gender theory, intersectionality, how it goes against God's law. And I lay all this out. But I am careful also to say that not everyone who applies these categories or uses this language necessarily are going down the entire slippery slope. And that is an important thing to recognize that you must not everyone who's influential, who's accepting some of these things are going to be as dangerous as others. Um, and that is important to know. And we also must recognize that we all need grace. We all need grace interacting with each other. We all need grace thinking about these things. Um, none of us have a perfect theology. None of us have a perfect understanding of God's law. And so we all need grace to interact with each other. And we all must fight for unity. Uh, the great theme of unity in the scriptures, I think, is a, is, is a blessed thing. And we need to pursue unity, but we also must be careful that unity is based on something. That unity is, is a fruit. It is not a root. And it is based on the truthfulness of the gospel. And so we need to, if we're going to be seeking unity, which we should do, we should do so in order to be open to correction yourself as well as correcting others based on the scriptural truth, right? A fake unity is exactly what happened to the mainline denominations. Can't we all just get along? Well, honestly, if you have a different gospel, the answer is no. But let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's come to unity on what the scriptures say. And from there, we can go arm in arm forward. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, Dan, we, we do appreciate you coming on the program tonight uh, and talking about this. We, we definitely encourage people to go and get the book. Uh, you can find it there on Amazon. Um, Dan, maybe any last closing thoughts uh, to close us out here before we, uh, we close the program down? No, I just want to say thank you. Um, I closed the book the way I just closed my last comment about unity being great, but being based on the truth. And so I, I came full circle and I appreciate this opportunity. It was nice to meet you guys, Natty and Mike, and good to talk to you again, Ricky. And uh, I hope you look forward to future conversations with you guys. This was fun. Yeah, definitely enjoyed having you on the program tonight. That's been G220 Radio for tonight. Uh, until next time, uh, God bless and good night.